Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel with the changing culture. I'm Eric Sintel, and I'm glad to be back after taking a break um, toward the end of the holidays and through January. And I hope you were patient, and I hope you uh, checked out some of our past episodes if you were looking for something to listen to and missed this podcast. So in this episode, I want to talk about the book of Job. Uh, so first I'll make a confession. I have never read the Bible like cover to cover. Um, I've read most of the Bible, and I've read some parts of the Bible several times, but I've never just sat down and read the whole Bible from cover to cover, beginning to end, and and read it in that way and understood everything you know in the sequence and the order in which we find it in the in our modern English Bibles. Um, so I've begun doing that, and I reread Job. Um, I've, this is probably my third or fourth time reading through Job, and it just really um, struck me in a whole new way. Um, and it's funny, I, I actually started out re- reading Job and thinking, oh, I've read this two or three times before, and I've thought about it quite a bit, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just going to kind of read through it quickly and get to, you know, some something I haven't read before. Um and what I found was I just really got into it. I started, I pulled out my highlighter and my pen. I started making all these notes. Um, and so I decided uh, for this episode to share some of my thoughts about Job and how I read and interpret Job and the meaning that I take away from it. Um, so I hope this is helpful. I hope this is useful to you. So to start with, um, Job opens up in kind of a strange way. Um, it opens up telling us about Job, and he you know, is the greatest man among all the people of the East. He's very pious. You know, He's so pious that he offers sacrifices to God on behalf of his children, just in case one of his children maybe did something wrong that day. Um, and then God is in this divine throne room surrounded by um, his... And God is bragging about Job and how pious and how uh, worshipful he is. And then Satan comes along. And I say Satan because in the ancient Hebrew, that's how you would pronounce it. And I say that to emphasize that we're not talking about the devil. We're talking about El Satan, a title. We're not talking about a name, a person, but a title in the Old Testament that's given to anyone who's opposing God or accusing or Um, And not in a uh, demonic way or an evil way, but more in like a uh, lawyerly way. You know, we're going to have a case here and I'm going to be the role of El Satan. I'm going to be opposing your position and forcing you to prove your case. And so Satan comes up and says, well, God, I don't know if Job would still worship you and still be so pious and faithful if he wasn't so richly blessed by you. If he didn't have this immense wealth, all this land, all of these servants, all of this um, livestock, as well as 10 children um, to carry on his line and his legacy. And so God says, okay, I'll take the bet and, um, and I will allow you to do whatever you want as long as you don't physically harm Job himself. And I want to read this next passage out loud. This is from uh, chapter 1 of Job. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. 
they put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came up and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger, a fourth messenger, came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Okay, so right there we have kind of almost a comic series of events, right? I mean, you could imagine kind of a Monty Python take on that scene or a um, maybe The Office, you know, Steve Carell. You could imagine this sort of, you know, comic take because we have four different servants arrive within a minute of each other with news of complete disaster and calamity. And they even use the exact same language and to describe uh, what happened and that they were the only ones who survived. So to me, this is a clue that we're not really dealing with um, history or biography as we understand it today, but rather we're talking about a story. You know, this is a literary story um, that probably is adapted from a very ancient story um, about a man named Job who um, was righteous and he did what he was supposed to do and therefore he was rewarded by God. Other people didn't do what they were supposed to do, therefore they were punished by God. And what we see here is an update on that ancient story. We see here in, in our Bibles um, a story in which that do good and receive good, do bad and receive bad understanding of the world is complicated. It's dismantled, deconstructed, because that's not really what we see here in Job. We see the opposite. We see that Job did nothing wrong, yet he suffers tremendously. And Job laments later in the story that there are people who do all kinds of wrong and yet flourish. They are just as wealthy, just as healthy, just as blessed as anyone. So I think it's important to view this story as a story, not as you know, a historical recording of actual events. Because I think if we look at it as a story, then we can interpret it in a literary way. Um, we can read it like we would a novel or a short story and look for themes and look for the artistry of the author. And I think we can get a lot more meaning and significance out of the story when we read it in that way. So after having this fourth messenger arrive, um, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the Lord, name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So um, that's an important line, actually. It, upon rereading it, it jumps out at me even more than before. But, and so I want to try to remember to come back to that. But that's an important line to help us understand the rest of the story. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So then after that, God's like, look, Satan, uh, Job still worships me. And Satan says, yeah, but you kind of kept me from doing my worst because you didn't let me hurt Job himself. And God says, okay, fine. You can do whatever you want to Job as long as you don't kill him. Don't take his life. So now uh, Satan goes back to work and 
Job then has um, these super painful large boils come up on his skin. Um, and so to paint the scene here, I mean, he is, he's lost all of his wealth, all of his livestock. He's lost 10 children. Um, he's lost all his servants, minus the four messengers who all came at the exact same time. Um, and then he also has uh, now lost his health. And even his own wife scorns him and ridicules him. Um, all of the, as we you know, will learn later in the story, all of the people around him shun him and ostracize him. They, he's lost his social standing because it's like, well, if, if all this has happened to you, then we don't have to respect you the way we used to when you had all this money and power. Um, and we can you know, make fun of you and talk about how much better off we are than you and how you, know, you must have done something really bad to make God mad and bring this upon yourself. Um, and aren't we just better off than you? So he's lost everything. And he's just sitting there in sackcloth and ashes with his shaved head and large, painful, bleeding boils all over his skin, ridiculed by his own wife, mocked and scorned by everyone in his society, his social circle. circle. Um, and then some of his friends show up to comfort him. Okay, and so they, at first, they are just sitting there with him, just sitting with him in his misery. Um, and then Job speaks, and he basically laments, why did this all have to happen? And also, uh, why was I ever born if this was going to happen to me? And then his friends start taking turns trying to convince him why this happened to him. And that it was his fault he must have done something to deserve all this pain and suffering this punishment um or if not him then one of his children must have done something and uh and they just won't give it up right um this the book of job is very repetitive in part because every time one of these friends tries to argue job into admitting okay yes i must have sinned somehow i don't know how but i must have done something or one of my children must have done something um, anytime that they try to convince him of that, he holds firm in saying, no, I did nothing wrong. I know I did nothing wrong. And I know none of my children did something wrong. And if they did, I sacrificed on their behalf. So that should have taken care of it in my belief system here. And so why is this happening to me? I still don't have a good answer. And you're blaming me at times. In fact, the friends blame God. And, uh, and Job just holds firm in saying, no. I don't agree with that. That's not true. And if God himself will show up and hear my case, then I'm pretty confident he's going to vindicate me in my case. He's going to agree with me and what I'm saying. Um, and then, you know, not to spoil anything, but at the end of the book of Job, that's exactly what happens. Um, so we have these friends just really trying their best to convince Job of these cliched answers to why does bad things happen to good people. Um, so starting with um, Eliphaz, he says, among other things, um, if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. And then a little bit further down, Eliphaz adds, blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. And so we, we see there kind of an interesting framing by his friend Eliphaz that um, he's advising Job 
you need to take your case to God. But at the same time, you know, don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. Um, accept whatever pain, suffering, evil, misfortune is happening to you so that you can learn from it, you can grow from it. And that's something you often hear people saying, right? Um, to me, that's an unsatisfactory answer to that question of why do bad things happen to good people? Um, because couldn't we learn and grow and mature without the pain and suffering? <laughs> you know, and in Job's case, couldn't he learn and grow and mature through some other means besides, you know, losing 10 of his children? Um, who's, you know, what's the, and, and why did they have to die for him to learn and grow something? It just doesn't make sense logically or emotionally and intuitively. Um, and it certainly doesn't, you know, if you're going to then pin that on God and say, well, you know, God did this or God allowed this so that you could benefit and learn and grow and get stronger in some way. I mean, that's, that seems kind of cruel. I mean, what father, what mother would do that to their child? Um, and, you know, as it says elsewhere in the scripture, I believe Jesus says, you know, if you know how to good give, good, give good gifts to your, your children, how much better will be the gifts of your heavenly father? Um, and so I think that anytime we realize, you know, um, I wouldn't do that <laughs> um, because that would not be loving if I did that, then we need to recognize that God, who is infinitely loving, would also probably not do that. So Job is not satisfied with Eliphaz's answer, um, and he says so. And then the one of his other friends, Bildad, um, also speaks up and says, um, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. So that we've seen Eliphaz blame Job and say, Job, stop complaining. You should actually be thankful for this pain and suffering um, because it's helping you mature or grow in some way. Um, and Bildad is saying, well, your children must have done something, and then God gave them over to that. Um, a very common phrase in the English translations of the ancient Hebrew, God gave them over, right? Um, and I think what that means is that he's allowing this to happen, uh, or he's allowing the natural consequences of someone's choices and actions and behavior to occur. Um, and then Job replies, But how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? Okay, so in this passage, um, Job is acknowledging God's power. And I think this is interesting. I think he's foreshadowing God's response at the very end of the book. And so then in chapter 10 of Job, uh, Job's speeches continue. Uh, and he says, if I am guilty, woe to me. Even if I am innocent, I cannot lift my head, for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. And then a couple lines down, why then did you, God, bring me out of the womb? Okay, and so Job is wondering, why was I born if this was going to happen to me? And even if I'm innocent of anything that would have brought this upon myself, I feel shamed. I feel abandoned. And so Job, the person, seems to feel like God is absent. He's been forsaken by God. So at this part, we've heard from two of Job's friends, and then there's Zophar. So Zophar speaks up, 
And Zophar says to Job, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? Yet if you devote your heart to him, skipping down a little bit in the scriptures, yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, and if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Okay, and so you see here Job's friend uh, Zophar appealing to mystery. So we've heard um, from the first friend, well, this is for your own good. You will learn from this suffering. You'll grow from it. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, and then the second friend is like, well, you did something, surely, or one of your children did. And then all this third friend is saying, well, you just don't know, right? It's just a mystery. Who knows why such things happen? Um, but if you will still just simply devote yourself to God, then you'll forget all the, these troubles. It'll be like water under the bridge. We're talking about a man who's lost 10 children in, at one time in a horrific building collapse, who's lost you know hundreds of servants or at least dozens of servants, thousands of livestock, all of his wealth, all of his social standing and his own physical health. Um, and his wife even mocked him and said, you should just go curl up somewhere and die. I don't know about you, but if I were Job, I don't think I would ever get over any of that. Um, and nor should someone necessarily get over all of that. And so Job replies with a, another lengthy speech. Um, and he says, I desire to speak to the Almighty, to argue my case with God. So earlier he's like, who could argue with God? You know, who could dispute with him? Um, and now here we see Job saying, you know what? I do want to argue my case with God. And Job says to his friend, you, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. And so he goes on to just tear into his friends and he says, would it turn out well if God examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Please put a stop to this pain and suffering. Then summon me, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Wow. And so Job is challenging his friends and God. He's saying to his friends, um, I, I do desire to speak with God and lay my case out before him. And then I want him to tell me where I've wronged and show me my offense and my sin and show me why this is happening to me. And I believe that he will, um, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so he really knows himself and he stands firm in himself and his um, faithfulness to God. And in contrast to that, he tells his friends, you're just deceiving yourselves. You're deceiving each other with your trite, cliched explanations. And if you were to Say these, things, say these things to God, God himself would not be deceived and he would, things would not go well for you if he examined you. 
Okay, and then as Job's uh, speech continues, he gets into some territory that I find really striking. Um, he says, this is in uh, chapter 14 of Job. He says, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. And in my uh, student Bible, um, there's a footnote there that says, or release. I will wait for my renewal or my release to come. And then at the very end of chapter 14, uh, Job says, If his sons are honored, he does not know it. If they are brought low, he does not see it. He feels but the pain of his own body and mourns only for himself. Right? And so what Job seems to be saying here is, you know, I want to lay my case before God, and I'm pretty sure God's going to uh, deliver me for the, because he's going to recognize that I didn't do anything wrong, that I didn't cause my own suffering. Um, and that unlike my friends who are speaking falsehood, falsehoods about God and about life, I'm telling the truth. And so I'm pretty confident God is going to deliver me here. But then Job goes even deeper and he says, but you know what? <laughs> I'm going to die one day. We're all going to die one day. Um, and so a lot of the book of Job, particularly from you know for the end of chapter 14 onward, you see Job wrestling with this. It's like, even if I could get a decent answer to why pain and suffering and evil happens, even if I could understand why this has happened to me, it doesn't really matter that much because I'm going to die one day um, and we're all going to die one day and I'm not going to see uh, if my sons prospered or if they were laid low. Um, so what's the point? You know? um, and so this is kind of uh, similar to Ecclesiastes, where Ecclesiastes, the author of Ecclesiastes is just so depressed because everything is pointless because sooner or later everyone dies and no one takes any of their achievements or their money or their uh, other uh, life experience with them in the mind of the author of Ecclesiastes. Um, because again, I think I've mentioned this in the previous episodes, but in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, they don't have an idea of heaven. Their idea of the afterlife is Sheol, this sort of vague grave or pit. Um, so they have this idea that people go somewhere after they die, but it's not necessarily heaven. It's not hell. It's actually more of just kind of a a place where you're just there. <laughs> and, and so it's not uh, in... The mind of the author of Ecclesiastes, the author of Job, and the rest of the whole testament, you're not it's not, oh I die and I go to heaven, yay, or oh I die and go to hell, uh-oh. But rather it's just I'm dead and that's it. <laughs> and so for in their minds, in both Ecclesiastes and Job, you see them wrestling with this. It's like, well, you know, no matter how righteous I am, or no matter how much I suffer, at the end of the day, we all pass away, and then whatever you know legacy we leave behind, we don't get to observe. We don't get to enjoy that. So what's the point of anything? What's the point of life? Um, and so the book of Ecclesiastes concludes, you know what? Be a faithful Jew anyway. Worship Yahweh anyway. Love God anyway. Um, and so I, I love that choice to believe, that choice to love. Um and I think we see that in Job here too, where he's wrestling with this realization that 
even if I get a good answer from God about why all this happened to me, um, one day I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to go down to the, the pit, the grave of Sheol, and nothing's going to matter <laughs> in this world, in this life. So why, why was I even born if I was going to suffer like this? And my ultimate faith is just to go down to Sheol. Why is anyone born, for that matter, <laughs> if we're all going to just suffer to varying degrees and then die and go down to Sheol? And this is not uh, not light reading. So let's uh, continue on in Job, because despite going down to the depths of the human condition, Job does come out in a hopeful, powerful way. Okay, so in chapter 17... Job again is wrestling with this idea of death, the realization of mortality. If the only home I hope for is the grave, Sheol, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? And then one of his friends replies, we're going back and forth. Um, most of those friends' speeches kind of revisit or reiterate previous points that they made. Um, and then Job replies and holds firm and steadfast. Um, and he actually says in chapter 19, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. So Job is saying, you know, I don't agree with you, my friends. I think you're wrong, and I wish that someone would record these words forever because your thinking that is so prevalent is just so off base. And then immediately after um, those verses I just read, immediately after that, Job adds, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And so again, in my notes... In my study Bible, um, there's a footnote for Redeemer, and it says, or Defender. And this is fascinating to me um, because, you know, I'm reading from the NIV, and uh, the NIV tends to make translation choices that really emphasize connections to Jesus. So I know that my Redeemer lives, okay, and that's clearly, I mean, hearkening to Jesus, that's clearly pointing to Jesus. But if in the original Hebrew, you could also translate that as defender. Defender places this hope of Job. I know that my defender lives. It, that hope, if we say defender, that hope is in the context of the story. I want to lay my case before God. And my defender, my defense attorney, lives. He's going to vindicate me once he hears my case. And so Job continues in this same passage. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And so you see there Job hoping that there's more to Sheol than just the pit, you know, hoping that he's going to see God, he's going to encounter God, even after his skin has been destroyed, um, that he is, you know, after his body has been destroyed, he is going to still have his face-to-face -face meeting, his encounter with God. He's still going to get to lay his case before God. 
So as the book goes on, we learn more and more about that case that Job wants to lay out. Um, in chapter 21, Job asks, Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? One man dies in full vigor, completely secure and at ease, his body well nourished, his bones rich with marrow. Another man dies in bitterness of soul, never having enjoyed anything good. Side by side they lie in the dust, and worms cover them both. Wow, right? So Job is really depressed. He's really in the darkness and really confronting the hardest truths of life that, you know, you look out and you see there are good people who are righteous, who are faithful, who are pious, who are poor, who are have poor health, who are beset by tragedy after tragedy. And then you have people who are wicked, people who are greedy, self-serving, who exploit the poor, who exploit other people, who abuse other people. And they die after a long life in perfect health with you know, plenty of uh, wealth, plenty of, of material needs met. And at the same time, side by side, they all lie together in the grave. We're all going to die in the end, no matter what. So what hope is there? What's the point? Why were we born only to suffer and then die? Well, Job's friend Eliphaz has an answer. Um, just stop worrying about it. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. To which Job replies, Yeah, but the groans of the dying rise from the city and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. But God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. Okay, Eliphaz, submit to God. Well, when I look out in the world, this is what I see. And it doesn't seem like just returning to the Almighty automatically means I'm restored here. In fact, that kind of sounds like some prosperity gospel from thousands of years ago. Apparently that, you know, never, apparently that's not as new of a thing as we think. And it, I guess, never really went away completely. Um, and so Job rebukes that. And then this is interesting. Bildad, uh, one of Job's other friends, says, you, you know what? God just doesn't care that much about people. How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man, who is but a maggot, a son of man, who is only a worm? Right? And so, you know, when I bait a fishing hook with a worm, I'm not thinking about that worm's pain or suffering. It doesn't cross my mind at all. And so Bildad, in, I guess, exasperation with Job, because Job's rejected all of the typical answers to why bad things happen. Why is there pain and suffering and evil in the world? You know, Job has rejected the idea that um, we bring it upon ourselves. Obviously, sometimes we make mistakes and there are consequences for those mistakes and those behaviors and actions. Sometimes there are no, there's no reason that we can identify, right? So Job recognizes that, that latter part, and he rejects his friend's idea that, well, you did something to deserve this or to bring this upon yourself. 
Um, he rejects the idea that one of his children did something or someone else in his family did something to bring it upon him. Um, he rejects the, the, all of the typical arguments, the cliched reasons that people give. Um, and then Bildad goes so far as to basically commit blasphemy, at least in a New Testament Christian's understanding of God, because uh, Bildad says, you know what, Job, you, you keep wanting an answer from God. Maybe God just doesn't care about humans that much. Maybe we're like worms to him. We just don't really cross his mind, and our pain and suffering doesn't really matter to him. He's indifferent to us. And then Job replies, um, and you know, you have to read into the words on the page to see the sarcasm in a lot of this book, but especially the beginning of chapter 26. Then Job replied, How you have helped the powerless! How you have saved the arm that is feeble! What advice you have offered to one without wisdom! Me! <laughs> and what great insight you have displayed! Who has helped you utter these words? You know, and so he is being super sarcastic, <laughs> trying to uh, respond to Bildad and say that Bildad is wrong. You know, he completely rejects the, what I would describe as blasphemy. You know, this idea that God does not love us, that in fact God just really is indifferent to us. Job rebukes that. And so, you know, he is struggling with what's the point? <laughs> Why do bad things happen? Sometimes that you can point to a reason, other times you can't. And sometimes you could say, well, they were a good person, they were a bad person, they got what they deserved. And other times, no, it's the opposite. People are not getting what they deserve. But you know what, Job adds, even if we figure this out, we're all dead in the end. What's the point? Why were we born only to suffer and die? Um, and yet, and yet, we see here in chapter 26, Job chooses to believe in a loving God. A little bit earlier he says i know my redeemer lives i know my defender lives and i know i will see him so in circumstances life circumstances that would lead many people to say well there's not a god because this is beyond awful if there is a god this couldn't have happened um in those circumstances job still chooses to believe in god he's got friends supposed friends making arguments that could easily turn most people or many people away from god and yet, he chooses to believe in God. My Redeemer lives. My Defender lives. And then, just a chapter later, a chapter or two later, Job is going even further to saying, I know God exists. I know God lives. And he's a loving God. He's a God who cares about humanity. We're not worms to him. He's not indifferent to us, but he is very caring toward us, very loving toward us. Um, so I just love the book of Job in part because it's this portrait of a person suffering unimaginably and yet choosing to believe in God and a loving God nonetheless. It's an example of a person really staring in the face that existential philosophical question about life and death and what's the point of it all and chooses life, he chooses to believe in God and a loving God at that. Um, so this is a really an encouragement to me um, when I'm in my darker moments. And so Job continues just laying into his friends, letting him know exactly what he thinks. 
Um, he says, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness and my tongue will utter no deceit. I will never admit that you, my friends, are right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me for as long as I live. Job is very much doubling down here on saying to his friends, you're wrong. The answers you've given me are wrong. You're not speaking truthfully about God. I am speaking truthfully about God. And I will never stop doing that. I will never just agree with you so you stop arguing with me and I could you know, maybe enjoy some social standing with you and some friendship with you. You know, that's one thing that uh, in rereading this for the fourth time or so, I that jumped out at me is what it must have cost Job to keep arguing with these people. You know, they just keep coming back at him, back at him with these arguments, and he keeps holding firm and strong. And you can imagine how nice it would have been for him to just say, you know what, okay, you're, you may be right, or you're probably right, you know, and just stop arguing and just um, acquiesce to what they were saying just so that he can get some sympathy from them, <laughs> just so that he can um, have some smooth, easygoing friendships with them in a very difficult time. Um, and yet he refuses to do that. He knows himself. He stands firm in his self-knowledge, and he believes in a God who is loving and caring, and he refuses to budge from that. Okay, so skipping ahead a little bit to chapter 32, we're almost to the end, I promise. Um, a fourth friend, who's a younger man, who's been listening to all of this, and out of respect for the older men, just kind of keeping quiet, letting them try to argue Job into submission, Elihu, uh, this younger man, Elihu, speaks up, and he basically says, I'm going to tell you what's right here. You know, I've listened to you all, and you're all wrong, and I've put up with it, and I'm tired of it. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. So listen to me. And in his speech, he says, um, among other things, he says, But I tell you, in this you are not right. For God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? Right? And so Elihu basically says, Well, God's really powerful and he's really awesome. And who are you to question God? Which is kind of similar to... Um, what Job said or acknowledged at the beginning of the book or near the beginning where he acknowledges God's power. He describes God's ability to move mountains and his, his other incredible uh, power and strength and majesty. Um, and, you know, says who could dispute with him, who could argue with him. Um, and so we see, see a kind of circularity to the book of Job. You know, the book of Job as a whole is pretty repetitive because you see you know, Job's friends returning back to some of their same arguments, trying to convince him. And you see Job just continuing to hold firm and, you know, reiterating some of his points. But you also see this circular nature to it, where at the beginning, Job acknowledges God's immense power. Um, and then Elihu basically says, well, God's really powerful and awesome. So who are you, Job? Who's any man to question him? If you think about it, that's really basically an appeal to mystery. Well, God works in mysterious ways, or God's ways are not our ways. We don't know. Um, but it's also heaping on some guilt and some shame. You know, how dare you even ask? How dare you even question? How dare you even want to reconcile a loving God with the pain and suffering and evil of the world? Um, and so you can sense, even in the book of Job, that the author of Job is 
dissatisfied, equally dissatisfied with Eli Yu's answer, uh, his appeal to mystery and, you know, and how dare you ask, um, because the book of Job continues. It doesn't end there and say, oh, well, that must be our answer. It continues. And Eli Yu continues in his speech. He says um, in chapter 34, that God repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. Okay, and so we're going back to that, well, if you do good things, you'll be rewarded. If you do bad things, you'll be punished. This kind of black and white, um, logical way of viewing the world. Um, and then Eliyu also adds, you know, but if God remains silent, if he doesn't give you an answer about what you did wrong, Job, um, if he hides his face, who can see him? You know, who can condemn him? And then skipping forward a little bit into chapter 35, Elihu is still talking, and he uh, says, God does not listen to the wicked. And how much less, then, will he listen when you, Job, say that you don't see him, that your case is before him, and you must wait for him? And then Elihu continues even into chapter 36, um, and says to Job that God... Um, makes people listen to correction, commands people to repent of their evil, and if they obey and serve him, they will spend the rest of their days in prosperity and their years in contentment. But if they do not listen, they will perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So again, you Elihu is really emphasizing this idea of do good, you'll be blessed, do evil or do bad, you'll be punished. And that's why it's important to remember the beginning of the book of Job, the setup that God himself is saying, look at my servant Job, how righteous he is, how worshipful, how faithful. He is blameless. No one is as good as he is. Um, and the whole bet between God and Satan is, yeah, but would he still be that way if you took away all the good things in his life? And so you see Elihu presenting this moralistic argument. Be a good person, do moral things, do good, you'll be blessed. If you're immoral, do bad things, you'll be punished. He's delivering this moralist, legalist message, and yet we know from the setup of Job that that's not the right answer either. We know that that isn't, doesn't apply to Job. Um, and we see thus how the book of Job as a whole is really trying to undermine that moralistic message about how to behave, how not to behave, and why. Um, and then, you know, it's trying to undermine that and complicate it and point out those times where, as Job says earlier in the book, uh, or in the middle of the book, you know, the wicked prosper and good men suffer. You know, you see that and you see, you know, people crying out in pain, suffering, um, who are being mistreated, exploited, abused, oppressed, and God doesn't charge their oppressors with wrongdoing. You know, so Job is really refusing to try to explain away those discrepancies by saying, "Well, it's a mystery. Who knows?" Or, "Well, someone must have done something wrong. We just don't know exactly what." Um, and he's really pushing back against that moralistic message that Elihu is presenting. And it's crucial, we know Job is right because of the setup at the beginning, but also because God shows up at the end and God himself vindicates Job 
and says that Job spoke truthfully about him and that Job's friends did not. Okay, so we know all of these arguments from Job's friends are not correct according to the book of Job, um, but rather Job's position seems to be closer to the answer. So we get to the very end of the book of Job. Elihu finally finishes speaking after taking up like three chapters to himself, and then God himself shows up and speaks. And so God shows up, and he basically says to Job, Hey Job, <laughs> who are you to question me? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? And then that sparks off a pretty long speech from God about all these amazing, powerful displays. And then Job responds. This is in chapter 40. So God's speech, you know, goes for like two chapters of, you know, these are all the powerful things I've done. And in chapter 40, um, Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. Okay, now this is crucial as well. Um, so according to P. Dins, a, a biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar, who's written a number of books, has a great podcast, The Bible for Normal People, but more importantly, I mean, he's got a PhD in Hebrew studies. He know, reads and speaks ancient Hebrew. So I'm, I'm assuming that this man knows what he's talking about here. Um, and, and so P. Dins, uh, PhD in Hebrew studies, has said that this phrase, I put my hand over my mouth, this phrase in the ancient Hebrew can be interpreted and understood as sarcasm. You know, it's kind of like a teenager, like, okay, yeah, sure, dad, whatever, dad. Um, and so read it in that way. Then Job answered the Lord, well, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Yeah, I'll, I'll be quiet. I spoke once, but I won't speak anymore twice, but I'll say no more, you know, whatever, dad. Um, and so, you know, that's a weird interpretation to say, well, Job's being sarcastic here, except God apparently isn't very satisfied with that answer because God continues speaking. So, you know, to me, you know, um, I don't know the ancient Hebrew. I put my hand over my mouth, you know, it's kind of an odd way of saying I won't talk anymore. But, and, and I could see how that could be an idiom or a colloquial phrase for like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, but even if Job, you know, even if the, that interpretation of the ancient Hebrew is mistaken or if there's disagreement on that interpretation among Hebrew scholars, even if that's not 100% true, to me, it makes sense to interpret Job's response as somewhat sarcastic or at least somewhat pushing back because God isn't satisfied with that response. God continues in another long speech that takes up about two chapters and basically repeats his same argument again. So he shows up immediately after Elihu finishes his speech and he says, Job, I were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you do all the amazing, powerful things that I can do? And then Job's response is, well, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. And then instead of saying like, 
thank you, Job. <laughs> God just continues and makes the same exact argument again in another really long speech, listing even more incredible displays of power. So God himself seems to be less than satisfied with Job's response. So he makes the same argument again, as though he wasn't sure Job was convinced the first time. And then in chapter 42 of Job, uh, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? You know, who is this who questions me and doesn't know what he's talking about? Surely, Job continues, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Okay, so again, we have to ask ourselves, what is the tone in which Job says this? Um, because, you know, you have God saying, can you do all these powerful things? I don't think so. So why are you questioning me? And why are you questioning why bad things happen in the world? And then Job's like, oh yeah, I won't say anymore. And then God says again, wait, did you not hear me the first time? I'm really powerful and I can do all these things and you can't. So where do you come off questioning me? And then Job again says, oh yeah, you're right. I, I, I won't talk anymore. Surely I spoke of things that I don't understand. I think it's highly likely Job is continuing to be sarcastic. He's continuing to say, um, sure. Yeah. I just don't understand. You're so much smarter than me, dad. Yeah. I won't question you again. Um, and and the reason I think it's likely that Job is continuing to be sarcastic, Job is continuing to hold his ground, um, is that in verse 7 of chapter 42, after Job says, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, we read, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, I am angry with you, and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. If you go all the way back to chapter 1 of Job, chapter 1, verse 22, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. At the beginning of the book, we're told that Job did not charge God with wrongdoing, that, and therefore you did not sin. At the end of the book, we see that Job has spoken truthfully about God, according to God himself. Whereas his friends, who suggested that God was indifferent to humans and their lives and suffering, that God was not a loving God, a caring God, um, who said, well, you did something to bring this upon yourself, Job, or we just don't know what, but there had to be something. Job, good people who do good things get rewarded. Bad people who do bad things get punished. You know that. And even if it's not clear if that's really happening, there must be some secret bad thing that you did or some secret good thing that the wicked did. We just don't know. It's all a mystery. Who knows? Those are their arguments. And God himself shows up at the end to say, all those arguments are lies about me. Those are falsehoods about me. And Job, you have spoken the truth about me. Um, and so I think it's highly likely that Job is being sarcastic in his responses in each of his responses to God, um, and standing firm and strong in his questioning of God and his challenging of God. Why do bad things happen to us? Why are we born only to suffer and die? 
because God says, well, I, can you do all these powerful things, Job? Like I can? No, you can't. And Job's response is, oh yeah, I won't say anything more. And that's not satisfactory. God continues and makes the same point again. And then God resp or Job responds pretty much the same way again. And so I think it, God seems to be respecting Job. Job seems to be earning God's respect by continuing to hold firm and stating his case and not wavering from it. Um, and and so I, I love the book of Job because it really challenges the moralistic notions of good and evil and pain and suffering and why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Um, and instead, it confronts us with what I think is more honesty um, and more um, reflection on of our lives and our lived experience. Um, so in God's response to Job, you know, he is, um, he mentions behemoth and Leviathan, and people often tend to focus on those parts of God's responses as his, you know, I can do all these awesome things. You know, can you fight Leviathan? Can you fight behemoth? Um, probably not. These are massive, powerful beasts. Some people think uh, one of them is a crocodile. Some of them think one of them might be an elephant. Some people try to say, well, these are dinosaurs. Um, I think those are that's probably not an accurate interpretation. You know, we're probably talking more about crocodiles or sea monsters, things like that. Whatever we're talking about, let's say that these are even made up creatures. The point, the literary point, the philosophical point is God is striving with other forces, right? Um, if you read his descriptions of having to fight these creatures, um, you can come to, I think at minimum, the conclusion that God's will does not just automatically overpower or overwhelm or control other wills, but rather God's will is one of many wills striving among each other. Think about humanity and its free will. I believe very strongly that we have free will, that we have free choice. Um, and I believe that because I think we need free will in order to for our choices to mean something, our choice to love God and follow God to mean anything. Um, and, and so if we have free will and God is not controlling us, we're not zombies or robots. I mean, there's 7 billion something, you know, wills competing with each other and with God's will all the time, right? And so um, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Well, we have free will and we exercise that free will. And sometimes we exercise it well. Sometimes we exercise it poorly. Sometimes we make good choices. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes we make choices that have unintended, unanticipated consequences. Um, so I think that the book of Job, in affirming that, yes, God is all-powerful, God can do all these amazing things, but his will is not the only will in the universe, that affirmation is, a, to me, a much more satisfactory answer to the difficult question of evil and the problem of suffering um, than saying, well, we just don't know, or, um, well, you do good, you get rewarded, you do bad, you get punished. It's, you know, it's karma. Um, or, you know, you did something to deserve this, we just don't know what. You know, to me, those are all very unsatisfactory answers that really paint a false picture of God. And the book of Job shows that to us, that those kinds of answers are false pictures of God and who he is. 
Um, he's not indifferent to our suffering. He cares very much about us. He loves us. But his will is not the only will in the universe. Now, earlier in this podcast, I mentioned that um, the story of Job is probably extremely ancient, probably predates the Bible itself, you know, the earliest manuscripts of the Hebrew scriptures themselves, um, and that the ancient story probably was uh, a moralistic tale of, you know, don't ever make the mistake of thinking you're righteous because, you know, look at Job, you know, he thought he was righteous and then all this happened to him. Um, and, you know, good God rewards good people. He punishes bad people. You know, you don't know. And if, if you're being punished, you must have done something bad. You know, so it, it was probably this moralistic tale. And um, Job turns it on its head. According to Pete Enns, um, he the book of Job is a post-exile book. Right? So this moralistic tale of simplistic you know, do good, get good, do bad, get bad, got subverted, turned on its head in uh, the version that we have in our Bibles today because the nation of Israel was conquered by Babylon and its people exiled to Babylon. So if you think about it, you know, you're an ancient Israelite, you're living in Jerusalem, you believe that your God is the one true God and all these other gods that the Babylonians worship and the Egyptians worship, these are false gods. Um, your God kicked the tar out of those Egyptian gods back when, um, with the 10 plagues and, um, and overwhelmed them and freed your people, your, your ancestors from bondage and delivered them to this promised land in Canaan. Except now you and your people just got wiped out and shipped off, exiled to Babylon. So apparently those Babylonian gods managed to kick the tar out of Yahweh in this case. And so if you're that Israelite living in exile in Babylon, trying to figure out how did this happen, right? Um, we believe our God is the one true God and all these other gods are just false imitators, you know, maybe lower beings, angels, demons, something like that. Um, and yet they beat our God, right? You know, the ancient people didn't say, yeah, they had more chariots than we did. That's why they won that battle or the war. They said their gods were more powerful than our gods in this war or in this battle. Um, and so you're an ancient, uh, Israelite living in exile in Babylon, trying to scratch, scratching your head, trying to figure out what the heck happened. <laughs> um, think about just how shattering that must have been you probably would have felt a lot like job felt upon learning that all his servants and livestock had been killed and taken and his 10 children had all been dead, uh, killed in a building collapse and so pete n suggests that the book of job is really an allegory for israel's story and that if israel will continue to remain faithful to yahweh even while in exile in babylon even despite all the evidence to the contrary um, that their God is a good God who loves them and cares for them and is powerful, despite all evidence to the contrary of that, if they will continue to choose to believe in God and to choose to believe in a loving God, a powerful God, that they will be restored as a nation one day. And so the very end of Job, you know, after God himself validates Job and rebukes Job's friends, um, we see Job restored. 
You know, he's blessed with twice as much as he had before. He has 10 new children to replace the older children. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, that's not very satisfying. You know, maybe bring the other children back to life. <laughs> and, um, but again, if you view this as a story, as a literary story or an allegory even, you get the idea that this isn't supposed to be a... Um, this isn't supposed to be turning back the clock, but rather about the future. It's not necessarily saying, okay, we're going to uh, make this so that like the exile never happened, but rather we're going to restore your future. We're going to give you as a nation and a people a future. Um, you will have blessings in the future. You won't always be in exile here. So um, I think that the book of Job is really powerful, really rewarding, both if we view it on an individual level or as an allegory for the nation of Israel. Um, I think that either way, we get wisdom for our lives, for our experiences. We get encouragement for when we're going through periods of suffering or pain or when we see evil happening in the world. Um, and most importantly, we get an image of a man, Job, choosing to believe in a loving God, even when it's hard, even when there's a lot of reason to not to believe in that kind of God, um, to walk away from God. Um, and so whenever, you know, I find myself in trying times, you know, I think about Job, I think about his choices, I think about um, his validation by God, and I think about um, God himself saying, you know, there are wills that I have to contend with. Okay, well, I've been uh, yakking away for over an hour, so I'd say that's plenty of hearing me talk. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope this was encouraging. I hope this um, was helpful in some way. And uh, if you know anyone that you think this would be helpful to, please tell them about it. Please share this episode with them. Uh, send the link to them or uh, tell them to where they can go to listen to the episode. Um, and if anyone has any suggestions for future topics or wants to come on the show to be interviewed or to chat and discuss, have a conversation, uh, please reach out to me at jameserickcentel at gmail.com um, or I'll even give you my cell phone. It's 573-718-4371. Thank you as always for listening to Metamorphosis and God bless.